Raw Ag is your link to the food chain and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Nick Kentish was born in 1964 and raised on his family farm near Mount Gambier in South Australia. After leaving school, Nick set about pursuing a career that often led him somewhere east of the sunrise. Now settled in the Adelaide Hills with his wife, Alexi, and three children, Nick combines his passion for livestock and people in pretty much everything he does. He is a facilitator for RCS and a trainer at low-stress stock handling schools. He does all of this with skill and humour. It is my pleasure to welcome Nick to the Raw Rag podcast. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be with you. Nick, you've done some uh, LSS, low-stress stock handling schools, with us at Tamania, quite a few now, and um, it's been quite a wonderful thing for our staff to be able to, well, firstly, all sort of understand what each other's doing in the yards, but it's obviously a lot deeper than that. It's, um, you know, to start to understand the psychology of um, animal behaviour also teaches us a little bit about our own psychology can you tell us a bit more about um, what you've been doing with LSS? Tom, it, it's funny how uh, we we go through a life of being stock people, uh, yeah, but being farmers, we, we, I don't know whether being a stockman um, comes as, as a, an afterthought or whether you're just expected to grow up with those in your genes or whatever, but it's not really defined much along the way unless you really take an, an, an avid interest in it and so there are some people that are really natural though aren't there in yeah oh, they are they are but if but if you look at most little kids uh, you know when they, when they walk over the yards for the first time as a three or four year old generally the first thing they do is pick up a stick so i think that there's uh, a bit of caveman in all of us there that's that's wanting to you know get some food get, get kill something eat it you know um and and yet probably the same child may well go on to be a really uh, uh, empathetic and understanding stock person and yet uh, his or her brother or sister with the same genetics, the same upbringing may just never get it. They may just never ever have that same level of understanding. So thinking about what you said about your staff there, Tom, and and it has been awesome to to work with the ones that have stuck around a long time and then even know that the ones that uh, moved on took a little bit of learning with them they often turn up in other places and they're a credit to you actually uh, i get to meet them again probably often you do too um but they they add stockmanship onto their list of credentials that i don't think a lot of people necessarily consciously do and they they handle their animals in such a way that they're looking for the the the, the most natural um, 
easy solution to, to what the animal wants to do, working with what the animal wants to do rather than what they as a human want to do. Nick, you mentioned empathy. How important is empathy? Um, uh, we see time and time again in the yards that anxiety increases and empathy decreases, I suppose. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it's also not a very good place for um, uh, marriages, is it really, the cattle yards? It's renowned for um, bringing up yeah. some issues in a marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can. We can talk about that when cows come home. Um, the, well, here's something as I always say is that your your worst stockmanship comes out when the dust of the truck coming up the driveway to collect them is more visible than than um, the dust of the cattle that aren't in the yards yet. So you know, knowing that you're beating to, the time has beaten you, you're running late, you're doing everything to try and you know satisfy time. And, and your worst stockmanship comes out. So an animal seems to sense that you're running late and, and that you're pushing. The worst thing you can say to a kid, a little kid, is quick, hurry up. And the worst thing you can do with animals is go quick, quick, hurry up. It just, it, it just throws everything into, into disarray and, and out of balance. So um, we have to then let time just disappear and, and do it ultimately it will it will be as quick, if not quicker, doing it this way. But we've got to let time disappear, and and um, and just enjoy whatever it is that we're doing, um, in order to get a job done as well. Somehow, so sometimes you have to do it quickly, the slow way, don't you? That's a good way of saying it. A really good way of saying it. And you know, talking about marriages and and you know, what what the cattle yards or sheep yards wouldn't enhance. Um, you know, we, we try to encourage people to, you know, put, put down their sticks and, and ultimately find it easier not to have to carry a stick around all day. You know, if carrying a stick is what really lays your hair back, we'll go for it. But, but generally it's not that useful after you've been working with these methods for a while. And, and one of the other trainers at LSS, Rod Knight, would, would uh, often say that he gave up using a stick um, Mainly because that was the last thing that hit him as his wife walked out of the yard. <laughs> yeah, now I've heard stories about uh, husband and wife fencing competitions with Polly Pipe before in the yards, and um, <laughs> it's it is funny though how the cattle yards do increase anxiety, and that anxiety then is sensed by the animals, and it becomes a a sort of a perpetuating, self fulfilling situation where that anxiety then leads to more and more and more and some, at some point you have to press the stop button don't you and sit back and go what's going on here yeah you do you sure do it's probably because you're not on the same page at all not even in the same book uh, when, we find that when people are on the same page uh, and and they've more often when they've come from diametric poles to then come to an LSS school together because this is just about the, the end of their career with animals, they discover um, that there is a, a common language and it's called the, angu- the language of animals, not the language of people. People have got nothing to do with it. But the language of animals is now the common language. They're the people that call me months and years later and, and all the rest of the, uh, the, the guys that teach low stress stock handling get the same results as the people just stay in touch forever because they can now speak a language that's that's common and it's actually 
you talk about um, being uh, being compassionate and and uh, and and working with animals. It's so much so that uh, you, you you are under your breath asking the animal what it's thinking, what it's saying, what it wants you to do, and I'll, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. That's what you're thinking or saying. So, Nick, how does it all work? What are the key principles of what you try to achieve when you run a school? Fundamentally, we would like to, when we're moving animals, have them in a frame of mind to create good movement. So it's, it's, the, it's the animal's frame of mind. It's imperative. And, and our frame of mind and what we do affects that greatly. Old Bud Williams, who, who brought both their stock handling in a trainable format to Australia, would say that. The problem started the moment we woke up and got out of bed. The, animal, the animals could tell from out in the paddock how we woke up and got out of bed. But uh, you know, maybe we can change and adjust that. Maybe we can't. But nevertheless, um, then understanding the principles of movement. Um, and a, an awareness important. of that, about how to get out of bed is a start, isn't it? That it actually, awareness. an awareness of it, meaning that you actually are going to influence the, the way your animals handle, or the way or the way that you approach the situation. Even if you're not that good at managing it, even an awareness does get you somewhere towards helping. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are just some days that it works better than others. And, it, and whether that be biorhythms or, or animals or how that, you know, whether they've had something in their diet or not enough water or not enough feed or. Um, and and then how the two of you interacted um, before you even got into the paddy. Uh, don't worry, the 50 million years has taught them a fair bit. So you know, they, they can hear you a long way off. They can sense what's happening. They, they can sense a, a level of urgency, whether you are acting more like a predator than a, than a friend or whatever. Um, they, 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 they know this stuff. They just know it. And the more you sit and observe, the more you'll realise that, that they're pretty good survivors. So going back to what you asked there, Tom, about, about the principles, there's some um, it's a pretty easy seven, seven principles that we talk about at, at stock handling schools uh, that, that relate to how we uh, operate when we're around animals. And, and there's a few key things like being able to um, identify a flight zone, which is an invisible thing, you know, it's an invisible space around an animal. And we know we have our personal space. Some people have really big personal space and some people have small ones. If you get inside somebody's personal space that's really big, you'll generally find out adversely what's going to happen. But we can we can be so rude and arrogant when it comes to with, uh, working with animals and we don't we don't acknowledge that and that's when we get trouble. So flight zones, really, really important thing and, re and reducing flight zones so we can work with our animals individually and as a mob is, um, is something we really focus on and, and change people's habits there. So there's a little bit of respect involved there, Nick. They're just animals after all, aren't they? I mean... Mm. If you meet someone first up and you talk to them six inches away from their face, they're not going to like it that much. And, and animals have survived for a very long time by refining their flight zone and their interaction with other animals. And to, to them, we're just another animal. 
um, we can present ourselves in a positive or negative way. And, and so respectfulness um, is, is a huge thing. And I think you, you talked to Tom before about, you know, the empathy that people show people that get on well with animals and are highly empathetic are very respectful, very, very respectful. In fact, often you'll find people who are, uh, uh, who have, um, you know, human engagement issues, you know, otherwise known as, as, you know, attention deficit disorder or, or autism or something like that on the spectrum. When, they, when you put them with animals, they go incredibly well together because they understand that space and, and, and a third dimension, which is, um, I think part of that is, is that, um, is respect. So you mentioned time before and, you know, animal time and human time, the truck coming down the road and the animals aren't in the yards and everything's going to go pear shaped because, um, yeah, you're, you're working to your time frame and not the animals. If, when that does happen, there are some tech, you know, the teaching of LSS, you know, sometimes time does go against you. And, you know, particularly you've worked, you've seen um, programs where you run timed AI programs and the cedars have to come out of a car at a given hour. Um, you can go down the paddock and go down an hour or two early to make sure that you've got time to get them in. And it's one of those bad days. <laughs> and you probably should have gone down another hour before that. So when those things do go wrong, what do you do, Nick? Uh, well, Bud would say quickly identify what you're doing to cause the problem and stop doing it and, and, and unwind it and go, go about it another way. So if you happen to be running late or the animals are just having one of those days where they won't go like you thought they should, you're going to have to... Um, re-angle your pressure like wherever you're pressuring from change that because it's not working but what we often end up doing is pressuring from where the animal if it could talk to us would say please don't pressure me from there go somewhere else and, and, and I'll do it for you so uh, coming up a laneway is a perfect example when we're in a hurry we'll just toot and bang and carry on down the back of the mob and try and just shove them up that laneway shove them up and if the animal could talk to you, it would say, I hate it when you do it from right behind me because I can't see you and, and I, I want you to get to somewhere where I can see you. So we might then go, okay, let's hop outside the laneway and do it from there and get that lead moving so then the tail will follow. Uh, and Or we might even hop out the laneway and go through the paddock if that happens to be an easier option. There's a whole lot of options that occur. And if we just have to, you know, violate their instincts a little bit. We're going to have to make amends later on and make up for it when, we, when we're d doing a bit of movement later on. Yeah, we've got to get to the yards. We've got to get them through the yards and process through the system. Um, and, and, and some of that, because of our setups, may, may violate their instincts a little bit or a lot. Uh, we, can, we can make it up um, by, by taking that pressure off and then some um, at a later date and maybe a little bit of retraining later on to, for them to be able to take that pressure, to be able to cop that kind of um, work that we're putting on them there. Because ultimately, they'll end up having to go onto a truck and, and to um, the great big paddock in the sky. And, and we're pretty deceitful mob, um, what we do. So we've actually got to get them to be able to tolerate that kind of pressure. And so to get them 
um, able to do that, we're not going to introduce them to it in one day. We've got to start with the first lesson, the second lesson, the third lesson. Every time we work with animals, we're giving them another lesson on how to tolerate pressure and how to, how to accept that. Um, when you say tolerate, you know, that's not something that we would perceive as being stressful, is it? So animals do have a completely different attitude to psychologically to um, trauma. You know, we sort of, we get, we get pain, uh, we get hurt physically quite easily and, um, and mentally we're a bit tougher. Animals are a bit the other way around, aren't they? Like mentally they're not really very tough, are they? They're right. Uh, they, they, uh, I think animals are incredibly, they have, a, they have a huge threshold for pain. For physical pain, I'm not saying we should do that. No, no, of course. Imply pain, but they they can tolerate immense levels of, of physical pain. Um, we overlay human emotions on our animals and go, well, I, I wouldn't cop that. I wouldn't cop a, a freeze brand or a rounding iron or an earmark or a needle that big. You know, I'll, I'll be out of there forever. Animals can can, can tolerate that, um, and and they heal well. But, but mental pain is totally inverse. They, they have very, very low tolerance for mental pain. So just isolating one animal in the yard on its own may be more mental pain than it can cope with. And I've seen that kill an animal, just the isolation in, in, in less than five minutes. So that's, that can happen. And you know, how we put an animal up a crush so that it walks up there, stands for whatever we've got to do, will tolerate the time in the crush, is it vitally important. It's how we prepare that animal way back in the backyard or even in a paddock uh, and then slowly bring it up to that point of pressure. Um, and and it, if the animal knows that the, it, well, it doesn't know actually that the pressure is going to end. It's just trusting, hopefully, that from previous experiences, the pressure builds up and builds up and builds up and then it and then it ends. But pressure with no end is called stress, and and that's what we're going to try and remove. From it. So it's fine to put pressure on, so long as you take that amount off. And fundamentally, you got to put pressure on. The animal has to accept that you put pressure on from where it wants it applied, and that you will process the animal through all sorts of things that you do in the yards. Um, but we also have to be able to take that pressure off. That's when you get greatest results. Nick, a few years ago, we had some um, school kids from inner Melbourne to the farm to come and meet animals and be on the farm for an experience. And uh, it was during calving, we had a calf that had lost its mother in a small yard near where the bus arrived. And uh, as the kids got off the bus, they took off over to the pen and I stopped them. And I said, wait, now you realize your eyes are in the front of your head and that animal's eyes are on the side of its head. If you go over there, it will be probably really, really very frightened of you and it won't be a great experience for it. With that knowledge, you're now free to do what you like. And they all went over and patted the calf. And they were also, you know, many, many of them were either vegan or they were very, very animal welfare inclined. And they, they actually did the wrong thing. How much of this... Low stress stock handling is giving us social license. <laughs> oh, I'd like to say heaps, um, but uh, we've got a little way to go. Um, you know, you go out the back of any given sale yard on any given day, 
uh, and watch watch the good and the bad and the ugly loading or unloading. Go to some leverages where the turnover of people at the back of the abattoirs is pretty high, uh, and there's some pretty average kind of animal handling happening. Um, there's some parts that we'd never like anybody to see. To, to, to if it wouldn't pass the 60 minutes camera test, Tom, we got a little trouble coming because it's going to get it's going to get filmed sooner or later, and the and the general public will see it. So we've got to be very careful that we are handling animals the way they want to be handled. We have a uh, an innate desire, as I said before, you know, as, as kids to to dominate over our animals and and they just they'll rush up to that animal and, and forget that it's a um, you know, it's got a fear a fear level and a flight zone that's preserved a species really well for 50 million years um, a little more knowledge will help them adjust to that like a little more knowledge will help the guy in the back of a larage in an abattoir like a little more knowledge will help the poor old truckie who never really got taught properly after he hopped out of a, a general carrier and went to drive a a four-decker sheep truck or, or a cattle box, you know, it's about the – I really feel strongly about the training and you just add some training to uh, everybody's knowledge and they're better for it most – nine times out of ten, they're better for it. That's probably a long way of saying I think I think a lot of training, Tom. Yeah. So what the eyes in the uh, – the position of eyes on the side of our heads – our humans and well most of humans eyes are in the same place on the front of their heads but um animals uh in general the herbivores are on the side so that they can see long distances you know can you explain a little bit about how um, a herbivore particularly sees us when we're walking in with the eyes in front of our head oh well they have a, a peripheral vision that's quite incredible it's hard for humans to understand how good that kind of peripheral vision can be because they have you know possibly greater than than 300 degree vision around the, the people say oh, they have trouble seeing in front of their nose well they don't have to move their nose very much to the left or right and they've got that one covered it's really just directly behind them um I wonder what it would look like. Would it look like a, a panorama photo that we could take with our camera? I would think so. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would think so, but also it's hard to know how the hypothalamus is hooked up between the left side and the right side of the brain um, because I know from, from, a, uh, from horse, a little bit about horse training um, when I used to do a bit a long time ago that you can't, uh, you can't just train one side of the animal and not repeat it on the other and expect a decent result. You have to train the left side and the right side. So the connection doesn't seem to be that great and you can have um, different results by doing more on one side than you can on another. Uh, so animals are looking at you through one eye all the time. They are just, they, they, there's nothing they want to do more than keep an eye on you. Um, and and they they just they just do that. They they know where you are and they're communicating it with each other at some ultrasonic level. Not necessarily we can hear. And they'll be saying he's over here, he's over there, he's he's behind us, he's in front of us, he's somewhere. They they pretty much know all the time. Uh, and and so they have an eye on you. They're looking for body language all the time. And and body language is the key thing. So. 
their method of communication is essentially silent. They feel they've, they've lived for 50 million years with a silent level of communication between each other, and it has to be like that in the wild in order not to attract attention. So why we feel compelled as humans to go make a whole lot of noise to get animals to shift is beyond me because the animals, if they could talk, would say, would you just shut up? I'm trying my best to communicate to everybody else so it's okay to move forward. And all you do is pollute their waves with your ha, ha, ha and whistling and carrying on like that. So from a, a, that perspective, Tom, that, uh, that eyes on the side, eyes on the front, predator-prey relationship is something that won't live, ever live long enough to understand. So the eyes in the front are predators' eyes, are they? And how do they work? Well, they can see great distances. Uh, I think actually animals' eyes on the side of their head are probably about uh, lining up um, uh, an easting and a northing more than anything. They, I do not. Uh, that they have a very good ability to work out whether you are going to miss them or collide. Uh, so, and they can work that out through through sort of watching you. If you try walking past a mob rather than walking at a mob and see what the reaction is, um, you, you'll, you'll see what I'm meaning. And, and so but, uh, we, or you know, hawks or eagles are gonna be the best example of a predator that can see great distances. Um, don't, don't, we're top of the food chain, so we don't need so much to know what's behind us. We're just focused on the prey that we're looking for out in front of us at great distance. So Nick, what are the advantages in having animals in a more relaxed and less stressful state of mind, both on the farm and off the farm, and what are the economic advantages? Firstly, I think that the rumen is an amazingly uh, refined and complex organ, and to have a rumen functioning properly um, with really low levels of adrenaline coursing through it, uh, and and um, the animal being able to graze as it should is really important. So if you watch a dairy cow graze, she takes 20 bites and one step, 20 bites and one step, really, really efficient. She doesn't tread on any more feed than she has to. Watch some dairy cows graze and they'll take 20 steps and one bite, 20 steps and one bite. So you know, the best way to lose weight is exercise lots and eat little. Um, so we don't want, we want our cattle to do, our beef cattle to do the inverse of that. And so if we can get animals to graze really well, um, move without higher levels of adrenaline coursing through their system, which changes pHs and changes digestibility, uh, or, or, or sorry, that changes the digestive process in a rumen, um, you're automatically on, on a, a better weight gain project, trajectory. Then handling animals more easily, just getting them nose to tail, walking through your system, walking through your yards, back out the other side again, um, being able to take uh, an embryo, to, to take semen, just take a bull, standing heat should just be standing heat uh, not not animals sort of running around uh with high levels of adrenaline um introducing mobs to each other when you box them together properly is a really good thing uh, plenty of people have often bought some red cows black cows and gray cows and three weeks later they go in the paddock and they find there's still the red cows in one section the black and another and the gray in another they haven't actually bonded or, or, or formed a new mob properly and we we humans need to help them do that 
So that's there's all sorts of economic advantages, and uh, th these are just things that are easily attainable just by our own actions. We don't have to go buy anything in order to do it. Just go and get a bit of knowledge and start invoking it in the paddy. Nick, we're um, getting to the end of our chat, and um, we've got a few questions for you on the three M's of the uh, Raw Ad podcast and the mistakes, the masterpieces, and your mentors. So, firstly, what mistakes have you made along the way? <laughs> so many, I can't, I can't begin to recall. But I'll tell you a really simple one that, that jumps in my head. Joe Thomas turning up, uh, working for a, a large pastoral company in Queensland with my own saddle. That, that's probably got to be the dumbest thing I could have done. I turned up there with my own saddle, looking like some professional um, <laughs> cowboy, and uh, um, first day out. You know, they looked. They looked at me. Which horse did they pick out for you, Nick? Oh, it was one that they said we could both learn together. <laughs> um, it, didn't, it didn't look like the night horse, that's for sure. Um, and and uh, so you know, put my saddle on, and I thought I won't. I won't get on just yet. I'll just wait and watch for everybody else and see what they do. And I, I put them up. In those days, you'd make a sandwich or two and wrap them up in newspaper and put it in your saddlebag. So I put in lunch in my saddlebag and I nearly got on the horse and I was watching everybody else. And there was one fellow there who was being, he was pretty nice to me. He said it wasn't wanting me to see me fail too much. And I, said, I watched everyone, they were sticking their lunch down the front of their shirt. And I said to Lacey, What's the go here, mate? Why does everyone stick their lunch down the front of their shirt? And this real, Townsville droll, he said, oh, well, at lunchtime, you want to be in the same place as your lunch, don't you? <laughs> it, it dawned on me I may not be. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, what about masterpieces in your life, Nick? Oh, I think having a couple of careers along the way, Tom, I've really, I mean, it's all sort of farm-related, uh, being able to um, move uh, move from one farm to another, start a new career. I, I love training. I have been very fortunate to um, be involved with those fair stock handling and now RCS training, grazing for profit schools. And um, seeing the good that people get is really motivating from that point of view. So that's that motivates me. And it sort of, I feel like it can go for the rest of my life, Tom. It's fun. And uh, mentors, some people you picked up along the way that you sort of hang in the back of your mind and you ask questions of? You know, uh, there are all sorts of people that I am cheeky enough to get their number and follow up later on and talk um, talk to them about the, the, the issue at, at the time. But there's been a couple along the way that I've kept in touch with. Uh, and Terry McCosker, would, would be one of those. I'm now lucky enough to work alongside him at RCS in um, in training and coaching there. So he's been great and, and um, you know, a, an old friend and guy, guy that I first worked for in the mid-'80s, Artie Lord in North Queensland, who is um, really just such a wise and, and thinking person. And if ever I get stuck, I would uh, I'd give him a call. But I, I, I actually don't have a, somebody that I've rung up and said, would you please be my mentor? And perhaps I think I should because it, 
is an often a, people find it an honour to be asked. I know I do, and um, you know they, they they'll generally give you more than you ever believed you could get out of it. It's sort of a next generation thing, though, isn't it, to actually make the phone call? I think, but it is nice. Nick, thanks for having for coming in and having a chat today on the Raw Ag podcast, and uh, your contribution to beef and the temperament of animals all over Australia is quite significant and also the pleasure that you impart on people that through your training going down to the yards and getting on with their wife better and when they work together and and getting on with their employees better and having a better and fulfilling day in the yards that's you definitely have done that for us so thank you Nick and I'm sure you've done it for many others. My pleasure I love doing it thanks for having us Tom. Well, this is when I jump on because I've been listening so intently today and and perhaps having a little giggle in quiet (laughs) behind the scenes. Loved the the idea, I guess, for me listening almost between the psychology of the animal and the carer. So, But my question to both of you with the wealth of experience that you've both got is around... The, mis- uh, the learning the hard way, you know, when you've had to learn by trial and error. So what were those early lessons for both of you, Nick? You know, when you're first starting out, someone could have told you, here's the textbook, this is what you need to do. But what was the, what can you think of that you had to learn the hard way? You know, I wish I'd known that before I went into that pen or? Oh, I used to hate letting wieners out of a yard. The, particularly in pastoral areas, and because we'd, we'd invariably lose some, and 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 they they weren't properly trained, they they weren't ready yet. We hadn't done enough work, um, and and all we'd done is bore them into submission. We didn't actually know the difference between training and 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 um, just making them dull, and so I used to hate it because it was it was, it was a failure most times, and and we say oh we got nearly all of them to the paddock. Uh, that was about the greatest successes you could get. Gosh, if I, if I knew what I know now, I could have been an absolute hero. We had, had 100% every time. And Tom, what have you learnt the hard way? Well, I suppose I've learnt the hard way. Well, I actually learnt it the easy way in the end because um, I was taught it at an um, LSS course. But um, and, and the LSS had, has this uh, that no animal, they used to say, I don't know if they still do, Nick, no animal will get past you or something. I can't remember. And I used to sort yeah, of think that was no a No animal will ever get away from you. No animal will ever get away from you. And I didn't quite understand what that meant until I got in. But I actually used to think that it was very important to make sure that animals did what they were told. And... Um, and that they, when I was putting them from one pen to another then, and then one didn't want to go, that I made sure it went, you know, because I was going to teach it a lesson. Um, and once I dropped that completely out of my thought process, they actually all went into the next yard and I didn't actually have to think about not letting the one, you know, not letting... So I stopped having a battle. I used to have a battle all the time. And then once I realised that if one wanted to go back the other way, but I had the majority of them in the yard and I was going to get it again the next time. And I just, I wasn't actually teaching it a bad lesson. It, that was probably one of my uh, defining moments in stockmanship. Uh, and Kate, I can vouch that his staff are now like that too. He, 
(laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing. (laughs) That's a good thing. And you know, um, the other thing that I guess I'm taking away from this is all those years that I was in the back paddock and grew up on a dairy farm going, hey, 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 was just wasted really. (laughs) Lucky I won't won't be in there trying to get the cows out anytime soon. Guys, well done today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Kate. Yeah, that's done. A lot of fun. Yeah. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.